traveling evangelist was, was there this particular day, and he would not let up on the sins of homosexuals. Every time he said the word, he would point at me. I became smaller and, and smaller. And I don't even know at 10, I knew exactly what the word meant, but I knew it was bad. And he was pointing at me. And by the end of that, that whole scenario, I didn't want to sing anymore. And in that moment, he put a, a seed in me, a path that poured into everything I did. Welcome to Imposters, the show where I talk to world-class execs, athletes, and entertainers about their personal challenges and how overcoming those challenges has shaped their careers and lives for the better. I'm your host, Alex Lieberman, co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. My guest today is Ty Herndon. Ty is a country music singer whose career started back in 1995 with his first number one single, What Mattered Most. Since then, Ty has had numerous number one records, a Grammy nomination, and has released 10 albums, his latest, which just came out this summer, titled Jacob. But in addition to his career success, Ty has had some dramatic personal highs and lows, from a public arrest at the very start of his career to a few stints in and out of rehab for an addiction to crystal meth, and even had two fake marriages to hide his homosexuality from the public eye, Ty's journey has been filled with hills and valleys, which ultimately led him to coming out as gay to his fan base and the world in 2014. The result was surprising. My full conversation with Ty Herndon right after this quick break. So Ty, you are one of the most impactful voices in country music, not just for your music, but also the stories of where your music comes from. And you've been through your fair share of struggle in your life, and we're going to get to some of that um, and how you've come out on the other side stronger. But first, tell us about your life before music and how you fell into the music scene. There, there was... I didn't have a life before music. It's so crazy because <laughs> I grew up in South Alabama. My grandmother had her own radio show on WPRN in Butler, Alabama. My mom and her two sisters were the Todd sisters. They were they were gigging, you know, at churches and camp meetings. And man, I by the time I was five years old, I was a little testimony, man. I was a little fireball. I was running the lanes of the the tabernacles and uh, and singing, "Who's on the Lord's side among you?" and come know this great God. And I mean, was that little? And mom says, I just kind of, instead of crying, I was singing. So I just, I just, it's been in me. It's, it's a gift. And I have, uh, I get emotional talking about See, right off the bat, I get emotional, man. Uh, because it's the one thing that's not been broken. It's the one thing that stood strong through everything else. It's, it's just been the centerpiece of who I am from just a little guy. So there wasn't really life before music. <laughs> so there was no life before music, but when was it that you knew you were going to have a career in music or said differently, when were you really discovered such that you knew you were going to be able to pay the bills with your music? When I was a senior in high school, I got, um, I did my first audition. I went and auditioned for a theme park called Opryland USA in Nashville, Tennessee. And 
it was attached to the Grand Ole Opry, which is the one thing in our house that we were allowed to listen to, you know, as far as secular music goes. So I would listen to Roy Acuff and Loretta Lynn and all the greats. And I was going to go work at a place where they were. And for some reason, that was okay with my mom and dad. It was, it was a natural migration, I guess. And I got the job and I was still a senior in high school. And that's when I, I got the bug for country music because I grew up in gospel and bluegrass, but country stands right there with them. And um, I could sing it. And I knew relatively early on that I was getting a lot of attention with this gift. You said it was around the end of high school that you caught the bug. What did that look like for you? It also was the, the one place that I felt comfortable. I was this really awkward kid. I was not a very popular kid in, in high school, but all of a sudden my junior year, I was getting the solos in the choir. I, I, you know, I didn't have acne anymore. <laughs> and I got one cheekbone and it was just... <laughs> I, uh, I kind of was coming to my own a little bit. And I also realized a little bit later that I, that I was looking at boys instead of girls. And you know, I had a crush on the high school quarterback instead of the head cheerleader. But yeah, I was hanging out with, with, these, with these awesome people. And I think the moment that I actually knew that I could do this for a living and got just a little bit of confidence was getting that job at Opryland and then having the principal at my high school announce it to the whole school that, Tyrone Herndon had made everyone proud and got this job at the Grand Ole Opry. So my first little taste of, uh, of media. <laughs> Despite the early encouragement of Ty's musical talent and the confidence it gave him, Ty says that his religious and largely homophobic upbringing created some deep scars early on. I'm this little Southern kid from Alabama. I grew up hunting and fishing and you know, my dad was a mechanic and just working on cars. And I guess, you know, around high school, I, I knew that I was gay and I wanted nothing to do with it. I just had been taught from day one, not necessarily from my family, but from the churches uh, that I was traveling mm -hmm. around. When I was 10 years old, I was had just finished doing this set of music and, and talking about God and and just seeing people, as we say in the South, come up and, and be saved. And this traveling evangelist was, was there this particular day, and he would not let up on the sins of homosexuals. Every time he said the word, he would point at me. And I became smaller and, and smaller. And I don't even know at 10 I knew exactly what the word meant, but I knew it was bad. And he was pointing at me. And... By the end of that, that whole scenario, I didn't want to sing anymore. I just, I became even more awkward and um, I just went within. And my mom came over to me and uh, right after she finished talking to that guy, um, Southern mom, very protective. Um, we never really saw him around those parts again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, she came over, all she said to me was, you're not broken. She goes, Get the light back in your eyes. You're not broken. But I don't care how great mom you are, how great healer you are. When that kind of break happens, it broke. And in that teaching moment from 
this guy who clearly has had some bad things happen to him. I mean, hurt people hurt people. And in that moment, he put a, a seed in me, a path that poured into everything I did. I wasn't going to be good enough. I wasn't going to be worthy enough. I wasn't going to be a man enough. And that all meant that I didn't want to be gay. It, everything about it was, was so incredibly broken. And when I got to Nashville, I, I'll jump ahead a little bit. When I got my record deal, uh, there was nothing about me that was the truth. I mean, it was just like I took a piece of paper and drew this guy. And the real me, who, who I'm getting to know today, I like him a lot. <laughs> you know, I don't want to sound dramatic, but he was almost non-existent. He was really in bad shape. Not long after getting his first record deal and releasing his first number one hit single, Ty was arrested in Dallas, Texas for indecent exposure. It was an embarrassing moment for Ty, whose career had just started to take off. This is when he'd also already begun experimenting with crystal meth as well. But instead of detailing what that experience was like, I wanted to talk about the trauma work Ty did to get himself out of that place. Talk for a second about what trauma work looks like, because I think some people listening to this episode may not have context in what that is, and maybe they've experienced trauma in their own life, and then they're like, okay, Ty's done the work. What does work even mean? Can you just share for a second what that journey looked like for you? Ty is doing the work. <laughs> He's doing doing the work on the ever the ever existing journey. I think it's just it's self-discovery, and it's being brave enough to sit down with a professional and uncover the scars leave no stone unturned. And then when you do that, you find out there was a stone that you didn't even know you put there. But let me back up just a little bit. I never knew that I could find out that, that I could get to know my disease. I've been to treatment centers before. I just, I didn't know that the reason maybe that I was, I was using was kind of like a medicine, I guess you would say. Um, I was hurting a, a lot and I was not letting anyone know put a song about it. It's called Lean In on the new album. And I really tell people now, check on your neighbors. If people are being really quiet or maybe a little too happy, just uh, maybe have a cup of coffee. Because I know in my own journey, I really convinced people I was okay. And I was not. And I'm just happy I don't need that medicine anymore. But I understand my disease now. I have my road to relapse. Clearly, when I work with sponsees now, that's a really important thing for me to know the signs, what's coming up. And understanding this disease has made it so much less. And recovery has become something that I, I promise you, I never thought I would see it this way. It is the magic kingdom. It's the shit works. I have a specific question for you. And then I'm going to back into something that I'm curious about. From a music success perspective, when did you feel like you had made it, like you had reached kind of the pinnacle of country music success? I'm going to be really honest with you. That's been the problem. I've been chasing it. I've, I've never stopped chasing it because the disease cut me down at the very moment. Call me the next Garth Brooks. Now, who knows if that actually would have happened? You know, that's what people, um, opinion of you is. And I, I've been chasing it. I'm still chasing it, but the difference is today, I'm chasing it my way. You know, my favorite album of all time is Bonnie Raitt's Nick of Time, because that album said everything. She made that album. Um, she was in recovery. And in that record, I know every inch of it. 
And that's what this record had to be. I mean, I don't know if I hit the mark on that or not, but it is the most real thing I've ever done. It took uh, 19 months of reinventing myself and telling the truth. You know, even though you feel like you haven't reached that pinnacle, I would say objectively, you've been a very successful musician. You talked a moment ago about how you had to relearn feeling joy. Up until recently, would you say that over the arc of your music career from, let's call it late high school until the last few years, you felt joy at all while you were attaining what someone from the outside call success as a musician? No. 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 Uh, I felt some joy at getting a Grammy nomination. That was pretty cool. Um, I felt some joy at winning a Dove Award because that was in the Christian world where I no longer belonged. It's interesting when it comes to talking about LGBTQ in the Christian world, which that's, a, you know, that's another day. But so many of the worship songs that those very churches worship to were written by gay people. And it makes me angry when anyone tells me that I can't stand in worship next to you because it's my worship and it's my relationship. And you don't get to have it. I get to have it. It's pretty heartbreaking to hear that for the first nearly 20 years of his career, Ty was unable to feel joy at any of his musical success. I think this really stemmed from Ty being unable to accept his own sexual identity for the majority of his life. When you're hiding truths about your life, not even to the world, but to yourself, it can wreak havoc on your happiness. The fact that Ty's Grammy nomination and multiple number one hit records couldn't spark joy within him speaks to how far that internal homophobia developed. We're going to take a quick break here, but when we come back, we'll hear about Ty's experience of finally coming out of the closet in 2014 and the ripple effects it has had on country music. Stay with us. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. And we're back. Before the break, Ty talked about how his early experiences of homophobia in the church impacted him and the trauma work he's been doing to help him heal. In 2014, 19 years after he first broke into the country music scene with a hit record, Ty finally publicly came out of the closet. I want to talk about your experience of ultimately coming out and being public about your sexuality. But first, I want to talk about before you came out and, and holding that all within you, the, the weight of your truth and not feeling comfortable to share that. Just tell me what that was like for you, whether it was physically, mentally, like what was that experience keeping your truth in? Number one, let me say that it is magnificent doing interviews today because I'm not terrified 
I don't have to be anybody but who I'm in this moment. And I mean, I literally for years would avoid even album time interviews because I didn't know what anybody was going to ask me. And it sometimes felt like if I had to come up with one more bullshit answer, that was just going to blow up. After I came out in 2014, my partner at the time, Matt, he came out to his family and his work as well. So I, I did have a partner in crime there. But after I came out, man, I, it was things didn't set well with me. It's like you went halfway on the journey, but I was still in country music. I still hadn't been able to tell my story. And it was better, but at least I could go on stage at that point and, and sing a song called Liza Told Myself, I'm Glad I Didn't Believe. Was, my life was riddled with that. And it was, it was my little journey to start being authentic on stage. Because even that was getting to be where the gigs were dwindling. People liked me and they liked my music. They didn't, they didn't hear the crap I was. And most country artists today, you know, you know who they are. And I didn't know who I was. So I came out in 2014 and started the journey to know who I was. And I hated had to get to a place through COVID that I almost wasn't on this planet to come home to this dude that I am today that I can look in the mirror and, and say, man, I love you. Tell me for a second, the, the decision to, to come out. When you ultimately came out, it, wasn't it that someone from your record label was at a gay bar and had seen you there? Actually, it was a couple of folks that worked in country radio uh, that, that kind of tattletold to uh, my record label president. But I thought they were pretty, they had a little bit of grace about it. You know, they just called my manager, said, hey, you know, maybe he could stop that. And, uh, you know, I want him to be happy. But, you know, the way it was presented to me was, with kindness, to be honest with you. But did I stop going? No. You know, that's the only time I could be with my partner that, you know, and in two step double three, you know, we were we were badass on the on the sawdust floor, man. We we were we were good. But that you just brought up the very thing that that became so hard. There was life with um he's wishes to remain nameless. We'll we'll just call him amazing. Um uh, spent fourteen years of my life and um there was that. There was a marriage. I guess call it a Hollywood marriage with a dear friend who I wouldn't be here today without. She kind of became the hero in the story because she sacrificed a lot for me. And uh, we were friends. We had, a, we had a great time. But being on uh, four pages of People magazine is a happy married couple after a horrific drug bust arrest that I, my ass should still be in jail today. Something interesting you said was after you came out, you didn't feel totally free. You didn't feel totally full. And I think it's an interesting point you make, right? Because I think some people may assume once someone comes out, like the, you know, their their full truth has been told, don't they feel like this full weight has been taken off their shoulders? And the way that you describe it, it feels like, you know, maybe twenty percent of the weight was taken off your shoulders. Explain why. Shelly Wright, my goddess and hero, she did this first, really, one of the first successful country artists to come out, basically got ran out of town. And it was really important to her that I do this a little differently, that I could maybe not be run out of town. She gave me some amazing advice, and she was she's still a really good friend today. But 
I told enough of the story that, that I could still work. But at the same time, if I didn't get to work, I was going to have to be okay with that because I could no longer live with one foot in and one foot out. It's like straddling the fence so long with gay and straight that, you know, <laughs> those guys are swollen. <laughs> <'Cause you're> just, <laughs> it's like, ah! <laughs> pick a side, dude. Shelly said, you know, hey, if you're depending on making a bunch of money and, and doing pride festivals and, and, you know, letting this be a new career for you, it doesn't work that way. You know, you may get to go do some speaking engagements, but you're only the new gay guy that just came out for 10 minutes. And then there's another fabulous person that's, that's going to be being honored and be in those speeches. And I needed to hear that. So it, it made me get really serious about the next record I made. It made me up my relationships with journalists, with country radio, with buyers, because here's the deal. I had six number one records and, and sold six million copies and all of this guys from the Nines will tell you, we sold them, but we still haven't made a dime. <laughs> what do you mean a $450,000 photo shoot? I didn't authorize that. <laughs> the music business is crazy. But because of what happened to me with the arrest, uh, right at the height of me, I, just, I was about to have my second number one record. But I, uh, I learned real quick that those radio guys and those buyers that buy the shows, those guys needed to say my name after I had they played my song. They were just playing the song. They were not saying my name. And it took me a long time to figure out where was the disconnect? Because I have friends that had two number one records that have much bigger careers. Mm, and yeah. it was, it, that, that was the disconnect. They, they stopped saying my name. So songs like Man Holding On To A Woman Letting Go, I Need To Be Loved Too Much, It Must Be Love. I'll sing those songs today and I'll have people come up to me and go, I had no idea that was your song. Well. You had mentioned that Shelly gave you great advice because, you know, she was run out of town after coming out. What was the actual results of what happened? So you came out, you know, your next concert that you played or whatever came next, like your biggest fear, I would assume, is what had happened to Shelly was going to happen to you. What actually happened? I had people celebrating for me. I mean, it was, it was the most unbelievable experience because, I mean, from Tim McGraw to, to Winona to so many celebrities were seeking out my phone number to call and congratulate me for um, finally being myself. Now, they were a little wrong about that because I could not have even spelled the, the word self at that point. But it was a start, and I received very little hate. There was some, and I asked my team to please hold on to all of them because I wanted to answer. That, I wanted to answer the hate mail. Um, not to be ugly, but just to do what my grandma taught me to do. Just just meet hate with love because you cannot change the closed off heart. It just it's not going to happen. So mm -hmm. all you can do is pour love on it. So I did. And what did you say to the hate? I said, I am not your enemy. I'm a man who loves country music and I get to do it for a living. At least I'm trying to. You don't have to like me. And I want to tell you that I love you. And then I would delete them because I didn't want to start. <laughs> that was time to delete. Bye-bye. Yeah, yes. But in my darkest moments, people have showered me with love. Uh, those are the friends that are still standing around me and that I'm allowed to stand with them. And doing this record and setting the record straight has also left me feeling the most vulnerable I've ever felt. And I 
I didn't really expect that. That was a, it's like, whoa. I mean, I, I talk about exposed. That's the real meaning of it. Well, for people who are listening to this, you know, whether they are hiding their sexuality because they feel like it's going to expose them or people are going to judge them or not even something related to sexuality, just something that they fear will make them look vulnerable in the eyes of whether it's coworkers, whether it's boss, someone who they want to look good to. What's your recommendation to them? What, what are your thoughts for them given you've gone through, you've gone through and you're going through the marathon? Your scars are the most beautiful thing about you. I mean, they're front and center for me right now. And I never thought that I would see that. That was never the solution. But what was in me is now out of me and I get to use it as teaching moments and, and made a lot of room for me to receive teaching. I listen better. And uh, like I said, I have a lot of words. <laughs> he says, my sponsor says 25 words or less time, like impossible. <laughs> I would just, like I tell the kids, we're, you know, we're, we all have that 10 year old living in us. And I, I would, you know, I just say, you're not broken, man. You know, and we're all, we live in a competitive as a world. And the, the smallest thing makes us feel less than, but lean into the less than because that's where the lesson is. And that's where the strength is. And it's going to make you bigger than anybody else <laughs> in the whole room. I want to talk about your struggle with addiction for a second. Um, there was an incredible write-up in People Magazine where you were so vulnerable about your addiction and your recovery with crystal meth. Instead of you chronicling us through the trauma of your addiction, I actually want to hear how you addressed this journey in your new album. So talk about just the songs and the lyrics and how you tell the story of that journey through your music. You just asked the question I've been waiting on. <laughs> to be quite honest with you, um, I live for music. It makes me happy. It pisses me off. It's, it's, I just, it runs the gamut of emotions. And that's what this record is. I, I, I didn't do a book. It's all in 11 songs. And so I, I, had, to, uh, I had to take that journey to, to fall in love with me and the good, the bad, and the ugly, and, and let some shit go. So this record is, it's my book, it's my story, it's my therapy. This is the first time in my life that this has happened that I think even a 10-year-old can relate to the lyrics. And for the first time ever, in the, as long as I've been doing this, I'm hearing from people I haven't heard from in five years, and they're very direct with me. It's like, we didn't understand what you were doing, but we do now. And people are listening to the whole album. Yeah, they're listening to the whole album. It's, um, it's why I do music, and I'm feeling it for the, really the, maybe the first time. When you think back to the moment you had shared as a child, where the evangelist who basically said that to be homosexual is a sin, you will be loved or accepted by God. And it seems like, you know, that was such a powerful moment that created such a, a fracture in your perception of yourself or your respect for yourself, your sense of self-worth. What do you feel towards that moment today? Whew. Well, the words were that you're going to burn in an everlasting lake of fire. You will burn for eternity. You will know no joy. <laughs> to me today, but I, you know, I'm a grown-up, but I'll allow that. No, I would not. But I was a 10-year-old kid. I mean, I think we're victims of what we're taught. And, and 
being knowledgeable about even the word of God is insanely important. And I love Matthew Vine's God and the Gay Christian. It's, it's a great book. I've seen some of my family members just put down the argument. Uh, they've also put down the argument because they know that this man has always been on fire for God. God's always been my friend. I wouldn't be here today. It's, it's, it, it lives somewhere in my eyeballs, even when they were not so bright. But I knew it was there. This is my big argument. Hey, guys, you know, we've all got cracks in our foundation. So if, if that's my crack in my foundation, my grandma Myrtle said that God's got a caulking gun. So there. <laughs> yeah, you can work on your life, leave mine alone. <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. Yes, that's pretty Southern. One last question for you, which is, you're in a pretty amazing position now to, to help younger people, younger musicians who don't necessarily have the headspace, the belief in themselves or, or the resources to, to help themselves and see themselves for who they are, right? The things that you are now seeing today, but it took a, a shit ton of time and work for you to get there. Are there any uh, stories or lessons you can share about guidance that you've given to young musicians or kids about helping them find their way? We have a, 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 an out girl in country music today. She's becoming a superstar. She's had her second number one record. Her name is Lily Rose. And there are others following up. Um, Ricky Eden and Shelly Fairchild. A lot of our strong females are paving the way but lily rose is right at that age where I, I said this from day one when i came out don't worry about being gay why don't you make this career your phd your 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 harvard law degree learn everything that you need to know about writing songs in this business and and take voice lessons to be great come to town with that and the rest will fall in place because you're you. You're beautifully, perfectly you. So be it. And damn it, I wish somebody had, had, had preached that to me. That's the that's the preacher I am today. Ty, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for the time. Absolutely, my friend. Hope we see you again. Ty Herndon is a complicated figure. He's someone who has neglected himself in extreme ways, whether it was hurting his physical well-being with his addiction issues or his emotional well-being when it was tough to accept his own sexuality. And I think he's a great example of how emotional and physical health are incredibly interconnected and how our professional pressures can simply get in the way of finding a sense of balance. Thankfully, when Ty did go to rehab and when he did come out to his fans, everyone accepted him with open arms. But it's understandable why Ty didn't feel accepted by himself for so long. So if you're in a situation where you feel like the world is crashing down on you because of fear, make sure to take a step back and do something that helps center you so you can think clearly. It's always better to accept yourself, your flaws, and your identity than to run away from them. Now, Imposters listeners, we need your help. We would love to hear from you on how the conversations on imposters have impacted your life. How does this show help you in your career or your personal life? Are there any particular guests or episodes that have stood out to you? And tell me the stuff that you haven't liked where you want the show to get better. Our goal is simple. We want to make this as valuable as humanly possible and make the show worthy of your time. So shoot me an email at alex at morningbrew.com and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. Imposters is a production of Morning Brew. 
Our senior producer is Vishnu Vallabhaneni, and Makila Heck is our producer. Brian Henry is our executive producer, and A.B. Silver is our booking producer. Our sound engineers are Dan Bauza and Rosemary Minkler. Greg Jacobs is our video producer, and Sarah Singer is our VP of Multimedia. Our theme song is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Original music in this episode is by Rosemary Minkler.